So for those of you who have been with us for a while, we're still in the book of Proverbs. And the last couple of weeks, we looked at friendship from Proverbs. And if you remember, there was this one underlying assumption in, in regarding friendship is that if you are friends long enough with somebody, you will have conflict. The reason is because at the core, we're sinful beings. And two sinners coming together, and the longer you spend together and the closer you become, the more you see just the depravity of our souls. It's, uh, it's just the nature of who we are and, uh, in this broken world. So as long as we have relationship and we're two people who are still being sanctified, we're still going to have brokenness in our relationships. And that doesn't mean that peace and, and relationship can't thrive, but it does mean that we, we need Christ at the center of our relationship in order for there to be the best possible relationship we can have with people around us, with friends. And so from Proverbs, there's this recurring theme that comes. One is friendship, and the second is actually strife, conflict, quarreling. There are so many words to describe it. And it shows us how much misery there is because of strife. And yet there is a peace that can overcome that strife. So we're going to look first at the, this miserable strife. And then secondly, at the peace that overcomes it. So first strife. Strife is miserable because it's, it's tension that is often existing between people who have a heart of anger and sin, conflict, self-centeredness. It's the idea of walking on eggshells because a person is moody and, and maybe they're always tired or, and because they're tired, they're irritable. There's comes bitterness, separation. All of these things sort of are the precursors to this ever expanding conflict that we see so often in our lives. And if we don't see it at all ever, with people whom we're close to. All you need to do is go back to last week where we talked about this idea of honesty and depth. That is to say that the closer you become to someone, the more you begin to learn their heart, the more perhaps you'll actually see more conflict. So just because you, don't, you never have conflict doesn't mean that actually uh, that's a good thing. Sometimes it means that we're just not deep enough with a person. So Proverbs has a lot to say about the impact of strife. That is, we're not supposed to be resigned to strife and to think, oh, well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to do anything about it. We can't do that because Jesus tells us that we have to be actively engaged with other people. We have to be involved with people, especially if we have conflict. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We can't just simply leave strife alone. It has to be dealt with. And so what I'd like to look at are four different ways strife impacts our lives. First is that strife stifles joy. Proverbs 17.1 says this, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. If you've ever enjoyed a really great baguette, you know, in one of the 
great qualities of a baguette is that if, if it's really good, it, it sort of crackles on the outside, but on the inside, it's soft and, and hot and fresh. But wait for about five to six days and take another bite out of that and you'll lose a tooth. You know, it's not only is it hard, it actually doesn't, it actually tastes like nothing. It's sort of a really hard crouton without any garlic herb on it. <laughs> it's, it's just hard. It's not tasty. And it, it has this staleness. Now, listen to what the Proverbs writer is saying is that it's better to eat that in a house that's quiet than a house full of feasting, a wealthy house. I sort of imagine this really large mansion. You have a husband and a wife. They're sitting at this really long table. They have household servants, chefs, butlers, maids, and they come out and put out this really fancy table setting. And they bring out all sorts of elaborate, delicious, delectable food, and they put it out. And this husband and wife, they're sitting at this really long table from each other, and they're eating this food, and it's just quiet. And you can sort of cut the, the tension with a knife. There's just emptiness, quiet. And so the Proverbs writer is saying, would you rather have that or would you rather have even, even poverty, but have a, a, a house filled with joy? I think for some of us, we have this memory, and I, I know I do. Sometimes when you think back and you, you can remember the, your home, and we have four children, the, um, a number of them are no longer in our house. So it's definitely quieter, our, uh, our house, our dinner table. And those times where, granted, it was not always joyous, there was strife, but it was full and it was fun sometimes. And we would eat and it would be just a lot of feasting, but it was a simpler life in a certain way. And now that we're older, it's quieter. It's a, it's a good reminder of the realities of age and of life. But here's the point of the Proverbs writer. He's saying that we tend to think that having comfort and wealth is the greatest pursuit you can have. And when you have that, you have pleasure, you have feasting, everything's great, everything's joyous, but that's not the case. Actually, what often is the, the place of that home is a place of strife. And it's a place of strife ultimately because you have two people who are living apart from Christ and who are living for themselves. The Lord says in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? There are many people, many people who attend church, who attend Christian activities, but who are trading in their souls for worldly success. And it's hard because the world's success is very alluring. It's it has a, a, a built-in lust to it. John says in 1 John 2, 16 through 17, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I mean, all you need to do is, if, you, uh, if some of you watched the Warriors play last night, you watched like, just the skill of some of these players. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. I watched two games yesterday. One was the Warriors game, and one was 
I watch soccer. And so I was watching Tottenham versus Liverpool. I know anyone watch that besides me. Yeah, you see, that says a lot. And uh, I, I see the skills of like the world's greatest soccer players and the world's greatest uh, basketball players. And there's a part of me that says, I wish I could be that person. <laughs> I wish I had that type of skill. It, it's an allure. And it seems simple, but it's, it's sort of in our hearts for everything. You, you go to someone's house and they happen to have a bigger house or they have a certain career and you look at it and there's a lust to it, a desire for it, a wanting of it. That desire and success for the world, it's, it's truly an addiction. And when you look at what the Proverbs writer is saying is that when you make that the end goal of your life, get ready for a life of strife. Better to have a dry morsel with quiet than this house full of feasting and yet there's only strife. And strife is this tension, not just against other people, but ultimately against God himself. There was no peace when we love the world more so when we, than when we love God. Any desire of the flesh is not from the Father, but is from the world, as John says. So, for example, there's a few ways this comes to bear. One is, and I've mentioned this before, and I think it's just, it's at the forefront of my mind. I know for many of you, it's, it's this tension of wanting the success of my children, and yet the worldly success of my children, but at the same time, walking that path to say, I want my children to know the Lord. And I think all of us who are parents, we're sort of walking that road. And it's a really tough road because I think where our inclinations, if we want to really admit it, because one, there's a sinful nature. Two is the world is all around us. And three is I, got, I just constantly see it. I want it for myself. So of course, I want it for my child. And so I long for that success. And as you think about that success, it starts taking hold of you. And as much as I say, I want my child to know the Lord, there's also this, but Lord, I actually want them to succeed. And we're making decisions. And parents, you make decisions over your ch child's life all throughout from the beginning, throughout their life. And those choices that you're making, choices of leaning towards the success of the world, be forewarned, you actually, they might get it. They might achieve what you secretly hoped. We can't hide it from God. I can say I want them to know the Lord more than the world, but in the end, if I want that more than God, can't hide it from God, it's there. And you know what? We can't hide it even from them because they see it themselves. They see that I want their academic success. I want their athletic success. I want their success in all things. And so when we're trying to guide them and pressure them and push them towards a certain direction, should we ever be surprised that they actually have a love for the world more than a love for Christ? Because in actuality, that's where we've been pushing them all along. And so when they don't follow the Lord, we must not be so surprised at all. In, in fact, that's the secret part of our heart. I can't tell you how many older parents who now have adult children who are absolutely have turned away from Christ, have no desire from, 
completely fallen and turned away from the Lord completely, who are now so regretful of those early decisions that they made to push their child to love the world more than God. And so this person is gaining the whole world but forfeiting their souls. And the fact of the matter is, is that I've wanted that too. But now that I'm older and I'm having family dinners and I listen to their conversation and when I talk about the Lord, they want nothing to do with him, it's not peace, it's strife. But big house, successful career. They've gotten into the school of their choice. They've made it, they've married someone, but they have no love for Christ, their spouse doesn't, their children don't. They are a family that is destined for destruction. And the scary part of it all is that I sort of wanted that, I thought, until I saw this big house that they're living in and it's filled with strife. Now that's misery. You can make a difference, but it starts today. And it starts with your heart. What, what are you really leaning into? What do you desire most? And you can say, I desire Christ most, but if your actions are showing the opposite, then you're really showing what you ultimately desire. You just have to simply be honest with yourself. Strife happens before the conflict. The conflict is just the fruit of the heart that was always there from the very beginning. It's the lustful heart, the lust of the world, the desires of the flesh. And it was formed because we want a life apart from God. And tragically, we can get it. We will get it. It's a house full of feasting with strife. That is a miserable life. I have sadly talked to so many people who have the nicest of homes, the best of careers, but a life full of strife. Second is strife divides families. I don't mean to give a non-Mother's Day verse, but I will. Proverbs 19.13, a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. And I want to add that while there's a place to discuss this regarding marriage and quarreling, I want to just broaden this to, because I think the rest of Scripture takes this idea of saying all quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. And so Proverbs is there saying that there is this intimate relationship and within it, sometimes there is this constant dripping. In my office, I was uh, typing away on my computer, working on a mess sermon, and suddenly I hear drops, bloop, bloop, bloop. This is in the middle of the really big rain and right after it. And so I thought, oh, what is going on? So I got a ladder, lifted up the drop ceiling tile, and then looked up, pushed it up, and suddenly water just all crashed down on me. And basically there was a, a leak in the roof. We actually had to pay for that and it was pretty expensive. But if we never dealt with it all, what was maybe thousands of dollars in damage could have been tens of thousands of dollars left unchecked or perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars if mold had gotten in or if the whole roof had rotted away and then everything crashed in. So that constant drip was an indicator for something far, far worse with something with much more devastating consequences. We're supposed to deal 
with this constant, consistent, slow, rhythmic pattern of critique and irritability and anger. And we think, is that really that big of a deal? Because it's, you can be angry by just being quiet, right? Just by giving the silent treatment. It's, it's a slow drip. Or we criticize. You could criticize your, your spouse or your children. And it's a steady, consistent, what are you, why are you doing this? You've got to change that. And clean up your room and do this and do that. And if it's every day of every moment, slowly but surely, what happens is eventually the roof caves in. Eventually, destruction, total destruction happens. And it destroys a person like a bomb that explodes and shrapnel just goes everywhere. It just rips people apart. It doesn't seem like that much fault-finding, being overly critical. It doesn't seem that bad if it's here and there one or two times. But the point of the Proverbs writer is that it's this continual, constant drip that never changes. Uh, you know, when you get into a conflict with someone, those are the times that you usually remember, oh, yeah, there's like that other thing that I have to, if, if they don't pick up their socks, oh, and also you don't take out the trash. And also, you don't do this. And also, oh, it's, it's interesting how we come up with all of our critiques one after the other. And I, I sort of describe it as, a, when I'm counseling people, I describe it as machine gun criticism. It's like, you start criticizing everyone with all these different things. Because once you get on a roll, you say this, 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 this. And it destroys the person. We should not be shocked that the point of the Proverbs writer is to say that slow dripping destroys. It, it doesn't start out that way, but it ends up that way. It ends up being really bad. It undermines relationship. It completely destroys the relationship. I want to encourage you to ask those around you if you have that type of heart. If Ask your husband or your wife. Ask a roommate, a friend, a parent, a child. Are you regularly criticizing or attacking? Is there a tension between the two of you based on this ongoing, you need to change this, you need to change this? And there is a place, again, we talked about it last week, to speak about truth in those relationships. But when it's continual, without mercy, without kindness, without forgiveness, it destroys. It creates strife and strife destroys. So... Do not be surprised, like the first thing you should think of when you have strife or tension between someone and yourself, always go back and ask the question, have I been overly critical on a continual basis? If the answer is yes, or actually you probably won't be able to know because you can't even tell. You need to ask someone, hey, I've been, have I been overly critical? Have I been judgmental? Have I been graceless? And if the answer is yes, then you know why the tension is there. Do not be shocked. Thirdly is strife hardens hearts. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. If you look at this verse, it's about a relationship with a brother, meaning someone who is close to you, is intimate to you, a family member, someone whom you treasure. Now here's the thing about conflict with people you are close with. Those 
conflicts, when you have it with someone who is close to you, that's when you are most susceptible to a hardened heart. Your heart becomes closed to people based on how close you are. It, it sort of makes sense if, if you think about it for a moment. If a stranger comes up to you and does something and you brush them off or they curse you out on the road or whatever, you might simmer and stir, but then you go off into your own thing and eventually you forget the person. It doesn't really, doesn't do that much to you. But when someone disappoints you and hurts you and they are a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a sibling or a roommate or a dear friend, and they really hurt you, disappointed you, there is a temptation to decide, I'm going to close them out. I'm going to shut them out. Because if you look at this verse, the bars of a castle refers to, if you have a gate on a castle, it's the bar that closes the gate. And so the, the castle or the fortress, it's made out of stone. It's very, very strong. The weakest point was the gate. And the way you guarded that gate was to have a really strong bar. As long as you had a strong bar, that castle is safe. And so what the Proverbs writer is saying is that the brother offended is more unyielding, is harder than someone who closes the gate. So I sort of look at it like this, is if you get hurt by somebody, you sort of run into your castle, you make sure the doors are shut, and you say, I'm never going to be hurt again. You might think, I'm never going to be hurt by that person again. But then you think, oh, but I will be open to these other people. No, that's not how it works. Once you close the door on one person, you close the door actually ultimately on God himself. And the reason why it is so impactful, your relationship to this person, is not because of the two might have nothing to do with each other, but it does. It has everything to do with your relationship to God. Because we see in Matthew, Jesus said, if you have a conflict with somebody, go first and reconcile, then come and worship. And the point is, we have to see that there is a direct correlation between how I relate to one another and how I view God. I can't just simply think they're completely separate from one another. So if you have a brother whom you have a strong tension against and bitterness and anger towards, a sister, a parent, a child, and there's no heart for openness, reconciliation. Of course, there are all sorts of circumstances. But if at, at the core of your heart, if you're unwilling to say, I want to forgive you, I want to grow together, if you've closed the door to that person, then you're not just closing the door to that person. You're closing that door to the Lord. And when you do that, it's going to impact other, your relationship to other people. It will. We're just not created to be so compartmentalized as people. You might be able to try to do it to the best of your ability to say, hey, what happens with my relationship to that person will have no impact in my life with other people, but it always does. Once you're hurt, there's no reconciliation, no forgiveness at all, no humility on your part. You've closed the bars. You've made sure that I will never get hurt again. It, it's harder. Your heart becomes harder. And again, I know I've sort of like a broken record. I've said this many times. I say it again is that there is a reason why people who are in their latter years of their life, why so many of them are alone, why their whole life is all about watching television by themselves or with their spouse. 
because along the way, they've closed the door, they've barred the door, they've ran into their castles, barred the door and said, you're never gonna hurt me again. They did that when they're 20 years old. And then when they're 30, and when they're 40, when they're 50, and by the time that they're 70, it's, there's no one left. It's just the two of them, all alone. Because no one can enter into their heart. Their heart is now a steel fortress and can never be broken into. The problem with this perspective is that, yes, there will be less pain in this world for that person when they've closed the door. But you know what they're also going to have less of is love, joy, peace. They're just going to be all by themselves, king of their castle, barred door, secure, safe, no pain, all alone. And it's a life of misery. It really is. You know, and um, I think most of you know that China has the zero COVID policy. And so because of that, everything that's happening in places like Shanghai and it's spreading all throughout China, Beijing. And, and uh, they've worked so hard to keep COVID out by locking everyone down. But I keep hearing stories of people who are literally starving to death in their apartments because they're locked down, they don't have enough food, and they just, they just have starved to death. I've read numerous accounts. That's exactly what Proverbs is warning us against here. We're being so defensive towards other people that we're literally starving ourselves to death of love, of peace. It's all about me, and we have no blessings, no joy. It was actually one of the worst things of even our time of COVID is that everyone's so self-consumed that there's no willingness to go and experience grace and love and the joy of fellowship. And we starve ourselves to death because strife hardens hearts. Next is that strife assumes pride. In chapter 17, verse 19, Proverbs says, whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, with Sue and we were hiking in the Oakland Hills and we had to drive up to the top. And as we're driving through, there's this, just the houses are beautiful, right? Large, overlooking the bay. It was a beautiful Saturday. And, and you overlook and you see just the, the scenery of the, we live in such a uh, beautiful area. Those homes, as you all know, are very, very expensive. And you build that high for the view. In biblical times, you built a home high, not just for the view, but you wanted to show that you're actually better off than the person down below. So if you look at this proverb, it sort of makes sense in that way. It says, he who makes his door high seeks destruction. So the person would build, sometimes you would build your house. If you saw your neighbor and you felt like, I wanted to be, I want to show them that I'm actually better than them, they would try to lift their house a little bit higher than their neighbor to show, I can look down on you. And this person who is always trying to sort of top others, be better, stronger, who's going to be more intelligent, successful, that heart, when you're always trying to overcome and be better than others. It's, it's a life of strife. It's a life of quarreling. I know like, for example, in athletics, that's such a big part of athletics. You, and I've had numerous conversations with different people. If you wanna be successful in sports, 
Sometimes you have to have the chip on your shoulder. You know, do you need to have the chip on your shoulder in order to be successful? Does, do you need to actually be the worst person possible? To, in order to succeed, you need to ground your opponents to the ground. And we might say, yes, yes, absolutely. To be Michael Jordan, you need to hate your opponents. You know, they need to be enemies. I think there's some truth to that, to some extent. But here's the thing. What does it get you in the end? But you say, but it's to be Michael Jordan, the best basketball player of all time, or think of any different field of life. To be the best, you need to make sure that you push everyone down and you be the top. What does it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And I think this is a question we have to truly, that statement is something we need to ask ourselves. Do I believe that to be true? If the answer is no, there's no eternity, there's no future, there's no judgment, in the end, this is all we have, then we sh this would be a very different message. It would be a you know, self-help, psych up, go destroy people, get to the top, be the best person you can be, make as much money as you want, have pleasure in this moment now because everything else, there's nothing else left. So just live for the moment. But if there is an eternity, and if there is a life, eternal life of pleasure, joy, feasting with the Lord that far exceeds, infinitely exceeds what we experience in this world, then to ground people to the ground, we're giving up literally everything for pittances. When Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 20, he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This is the danger of the person who's trying to make their door high is that they are living for the purpose of trying to dominate and control and trying to dictate their identity and worth based on what they've earned and built on their own. But there is a death to come. This is not everything. If I could somehow get it so that when I was younger, I could have understood this, or my children, or the youth in our church, if they could really grasp this, that to live for eternity, not for the pleasures of the moment, or if you has, and it's not just for youth, it's for all of us. I really believe this. If there, was, if there was this real understanding and depth of understanding of this, pornography would be destroyed. We would have no desire for it. There would be no such thing as adultery. Why would we ever desire anyone other than our husband and wife when we truly have this ultimate joy? Why would we be living for money and the success of our families? Why wouldn't we? enjoy much more the pleasures of God than this world that are so limited. So Jesus says in Luke 12, 20, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do we take that to heart? Strife assumes pride. This life, this prideful life is a life of strife. So here's the challenge with all of this is that when I read these things, you know who I see in them? It's me. I mean, I see quarreling, definitely had my fair share, fighting, anger, irritability. 
And I've seen how miserable it is. You know, the, the sad part of it is that I know it's miserable. I know I shouldn't do it. I know it does not honor God. I know it hurts people, but I still do it anyway. And that's a, that's a terrible thing. I also know that having this type of heart breaks community. It separates. It's satanic. It's an attempt to try to harden my heart towards God and towards other people. And even though I know all of that, and even though I'm not supposed to do that, I still do it. And I can't help but do it. And after I leave today, I will do it again. This week, possibly today. In my heart, definitely today. And I still do it. So what hope is there? You know, the hope is not. Here are 10 answers, 10 things you can do to rid yourself of this type of heart. First, go and pray. Second, read the Bible for two hours a day instead of one. Third, fast. Fourth, go and evangelize to five people. Six, go on a missions trip. Seven, go and tell your, uh, your, every person in your family, say, I'm sorry. I could go down this list. And you know what? You do every one of those things, and you'll still do the quarreling and fighting and anger and irritability. That's the problem of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount and the Bible is that Jesus doesn't let us get away with actions. He goes deep to our hearts. And he knows that we cannot do this. So what's the answer? The answer is that he has to do it for us. No, he has to do it. He has to pay this price. There's a cost to our relationship with God when we do these things. It's broken relationship. There is, in order for that cost to be fulfilled, in order for the bridge to be, the chasm to be bridged, this price had to be paid. We see it in Genesis. When Adam and Eve had rejected God, animal skins covered their nakedness, their shame. And all throughout the early parts of the Old Testament, the Torah, we see those animal sacrifices. Why? Because blood covers sin. Shed blood covers sin. We see it all throughout until we get to one who's no longer, do we, do, is there a need for any type of shedding of animal blood or anything else? It's an eternal, forever payment of God's own son. Jesus had to give up his re rights to reconcile us. You know, I refuse to give up my rights and therefore quarreling and strife. Jesus gives up his rights as God so that I can be freed from the power of quarreling and strife. He had to be made nothing. He had to take on the form of a slave so that we who want to be masters of our own lives would be freed. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He wanted peace for us. And he knew the only way there would be peace with other people is first there had to be peace with God himself and us. And the only way that that peace would happen is that he would have to pay the price for that peace. Despite that, he still says, peace I leave with you. And then Psalm, uh, Proverbs 16.7 says this, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I want to tell you that on our own, we can never please God. Not enough. We'll always fail him. But remember when Jesus was being baptized and a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am 
well pleased. I am well pleased with him. And then look at Proverbs 16, 7, truly like a, just answering the, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. That is to say that it's Jesus who always perfectly pleased the Lord. And Jesus humbled himself to death, willingly laid down his life for me and for you. He paid a price as a ransom for many so that we can have peace with God, which then empowers us to have peace even with enemies. It's possible. You will never have true lasting peace, freedom from quarreling, unless you please God. And you won't be able to please God on your own. You need Christ. You need Jesus. You need to turn to him. You need to trust him. You need to say that it is by no other name by which I'm saved. And when you do that, there is a joy that is unspeakable, unfathomable that is for you ahead and a peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there is no way on our own that we could have peace. Your word tells us so. The chasm was too great the bridge too far to um, reconcile. It had to be by the very price of your son's shed blood for us. We come to this table, O oh Lord, just so thankful. The power that is seen here when we take the bread and the wine is a symbol of all that you have done for us, Lord. Not only does it reconcile us to the Father, but it also is the power upon which we're able to have reconciliation with others, to actually have love for others, even when they hurt us, when they wound us, and especially for those who are close to us. Lord, some of us in this room have hardened our hearts. We've become cold to people. Forgive us, O Lord, because by doing so, we have failed to see what price you had to pay so that you would accept us, that you would welcome us. So we just turn to you. We run to you. We ask that you would be glorified, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.